The Old Testament scripture reading for this morning, as well as our sermon text, comes from Exodus chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Exodus chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Egypt, on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, This is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the slave girl, who is at her hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be a loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been and ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray and ask him to bless the hearing of it. Our Father, we come before you knowing that it is you and you alone who feed and build up your sheep. And we pray that you would do so this morning by your word, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would allow your word to accomplish all that it has set out to do, not return empty and void. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Any great showman knows the importance of the announcement. And when I say that, I'm not talking about what we do here at the beginning of each service on Sunday morning, you know, reminders of upcoming events. I'm talking about the introduction to the main event. You know, the showman has this need to tell you what you're about to see, what you're about to hear, what you are about to witness as it comes before you so that you can know it and appreciate and wonder at it appropriately when it happens. I mean, that's what we're taught to expect at any performance of any kind. Uh, The circus and the entertainer, they have taught us the announcement is all important to the main event. You know, ladies and gents, this is the moment you've been waiting for. It's finally here. And then the show begins, and you and I as spectators, we witness the greatness that was just announced play out upon the stage before us. 
we experience and we taste and know and see what is before us is truly spectacular. It is true greatness. And we appreciate it all the more because of the announcement itself. Well, in many ways this morning, people of God, we've come to that moment here. This is the moment you've been waiting for, even if you haven't known it. What you are about to see will astonish and amaze. It will defy logic. It will defy the natural order of things as we know it. Or at the least, that is what the text announces to us. But that is what our text is. It is the announcement to God's people that we have now come to the moment we've all been waiting for. We come to the moment that all the plagues of Egypt upon the people of Egypt have been building to. All of the plagues have been important. God displays a part of himself throughout them all, always defending or defeating the gods of this particular world and the gods of this age and displaying the true power of God They have all been displayed for us here so that we might know that Yahweh is the almighty God, that he rules over all creation, that there is none beside him who have authority over creation. We've seen God's justice displayed. We've seen his sovereignty displayed and manifested for he hardens whom he hardens. And in that sovereignty, we've seen God's mercy, that he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. We've seen God crash economies in a word, and with an outstretched staff, and preserve his people from all harm. All of this is wrapped up in the plague of Egypt. In all the plagues, God reveals his might, his power, his sovereignty, his justice, in repaying sinners and his mercy upon God's people. And yet here we finally come to the big one. The moment we have been waiting for, the one plague that was announced long ago, even before all the rest, before all the other plagues, we heard of this particular one that we have known all along is coming. For God told us back in chapter 4, let my son Israel go, my firstborn, or behold, I will kill your firstborn. And indeed, we've seen that flesh itself out upon the stage. Pharaoh refuses to let Israel, God's firstborn son, go. Before any other sign has been given, this moment was announced and we have waited for it to come about with bated breath like spectators waiting for the main attraction to finally come, that final moment to play itself out, and now it's here. Like the main event, this plague is what the text has been building toward for a long time coming. This is the big kahuna. I mean, you can see its importance just by how much time is spent on it. For just about every plague, each of the first nine, roughly 20 verses are spent on average on each plague. And yet, God will spend almost twice that much time or more on this final plague, this one plague before us, because it carries so much weight. So why? Why spend so much time speaking of the killing of the firstborn son Through chapters 4 and 11 and 12, people of God, it is because, again, this is the main event. It is finally here. Everything in the plagues has been building to this unique plague. God even tells us this is the case in verse 1 of chapter 11 when he says, Yet one more plague will I deliver upon Pharaoh. And then he'll let you go. That's what all this has been about. 
about the deliverance of God's people through it one more time and it will all be over. God says, here, the moment you've been waiting for, your deliverance, the defeat of all the enemies of God has come and he will deliver his people in one fell swoop. And yet as it comes, God will announce it's coming to us one more time. In fact, the whole of this chapter is not the actual plague itself, you'll notice. It isn't the actual event that will only come later. This is the announcement of its coming. The actual action of the plague won't happen for another 30 verses. And so why does this plague, this coming plague, need to be announced to us? Why is the narrative slowing down to remind us, you know, we've had action after action after action. Moses has said what God would do, and then God does it. And then Moses says what God will do, and then God does it. Why slow down that flow of thought now to instruct us about this final plague? People of God is because this final plague announces the future, that God's enemies will be defeated once and for all, and that they will pay dearly for their crimes and sins against him. It announces that God's people will be protected, and not only protected on that final day, but receive an inheritance from the Lord. They will gain all things, while those who are not God's people will lose everything. That is what we see in our text as we see God's enemies defeated. We first see God's enemies defeated. Notice what we see being announced. Again, this is what is being proclaimed to us. God tells us, again, this is the big one. This is the most important one for you to pay attention. So much so that Moses will give Israel in specific instructions for how they are to act once all this is accomplished in it. All throughout chapter 12, no other plague has warranted this much description for God's people to hear about what to do in light of this plague. Only this plague, this one plague, will leave you and lead you to deliverance, out of bondage, into the promised land. God says, one more plague, and then it's all over. My war with this false god will be won. And all the world, oh, you people of God and Egypt, all those who perceive this will know that I am God. Even those who reject me will know I am the true God, for I have humiliated all of the gods of Egypt. All these false gods have fallen before my face. I will have shown to them the empty power of it all. I will have made my might and power known. How will God do this thing? What will he do? Notice in verse 4, God tells us exactly what he will do. He says, in the middle of the night, I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in Egypt without distinction will die. From the poor to the great, even extending to Pharaoh himself, his heir, the rising son of God, if you will, will be cast down in death here. Even the cattle, those who have survived the pestilence and the hail, even their firstborn Will die. Now, what is going on here? What is it that God wants us to see exactly about Himself? Why come at midnight and in the middle of the night? Well, you'll notice God makes it a point to tell us when He comes. Again, He comes at night, He comes literally at the divide of the night. And in the scriptures, night and darkness always is a symbol for death. It is a reminder that death is coming. And so darkness holds nothing but the terror 
of that reality of death, of impending death. And that is why we call them the terrors of the night. All that awaits men who walk in darkness is judgment in the presence of God. And he demonstrates that here in his coming to Egypt. Notice the language God uses to speak of his coming. He says, I am coming into their midst. We as believers think that should be good news, right? God is coming. To stand before God, to be in his presence. I mean, isn't it that the benediction that I speak as the pastor over you each Lord's Day, that God's face would shine upon you, that his presence would be ever before you? And it's true that we who are in Christ, God's coming is good news because of the shed blood of the Lamb. But it will not be good news when a holy God walks in the midst of an unholy people. What is it Isaiah cries when he sees God face to face? He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Moses does the same thing when he speaks to God at the burning bush and announces, and God announces who he is. Moses immediately covers his face so that he will not see God lest he die. And so when you are seeing God coming, when you are hearing that God is coming, because he is coming to sinners, he is coming with death in, it, in his wings. You know, it reminds you of the garden scene of Adam and Eve who have just eaten the forbidden fruit and suddenly, behold, they hear the sound of God coming, walking in the garden in the midst of his people. And when before his appearance, living in the light of his face was a good thing. Suddenly, God's appearance, because of their eating the forbidden fruit, is as terrifying as the night. It is no longer joyful, for man has sinned and can no longer behold God's face and live. Now, death comes to sinners as they enter into the presence of Jehovah. There's a scene in the movie Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where Indiana and his girl are tied to a stake, and the German army is about to open up the Ark of the Covenant, and Indiana says, close your eyes and don't open them no matter what. And immediately the Ark is opened, and sure enough, very quickly, all who have sought the face of Jehovah, all who behold his face in that moment, all who look upon his face are immediately killed and slain. None live who behold the face of the living God. God says, I'm going to set my foot in Egypt's land. I'm going to walk among them. And the Egyptians will be delivered into the valley of the shadow of death, for they will see and behold my face. They will die in the presence of this God. It's interesting. This is the very thing that Pharaoh says will happen to Moses. This false God proclaiming the same thing that God says. That if Moses sets foot in his presence again, back in chapter 10, verse 28, that Moses will be killed, but God flips that announcement on his head and God goes to war against Egypt. And just like in all wars, death will reign. Those who step foot into God's presence will die and there will be so much death on this particular night. Egypt will know a sorrow like this, has, that has, or they will know no sorrow like this particular night. There never has been a night like this for them. Never will there be again. They will cry out in a great cry. Interesting language 
choice here. You know, we haven't seen that word cry out since we heard Israel cry out to God in chapter 1. Then again, Pharaoh loads his people down with an impossible workload, building straw or bricks without straw, and he makes them cry out to the living God. And God, as he reverses things, as he flips it on his head, he said, God says here, what you did to my firstborn son, my people, I will do to you. You will make, I will make you cry out and there will be no one to save you as there was no one to save them. God doesn't stop here. The enemies of God, they will receive death ultimately, which is punishment enough. But you'll notice that before they do, God's going to plunder them. You know, all throughout, especially First and Second Samuel, when King David is victorious, it talks about uh, uh, David will conquer, King David will conquer an army, uh, an enemy of God, and he will bring back the spoils of war. That is the right as the victor in a battle. They plunder those whom they have been victorious over. And that is what is happening here. God says in verses 1 through 3, Israel, hey, before you leave, Israel, I want you to go to your neighbor and I want you to take the silver and gold from them. And they will give it to you favorably. They will give you their precious vessels and heirlooms, things they have collected all their lives, have been passed down from generation to generation. They will give you all that you ask for. And by this, God ultimately is saying, at least in part, he is fulfilling his promise that he made to Abraham long ago, back in Genesis 15, when he says, your people will dwell in that land of Egypt for 430 years, but when they leave, they will not go away empty. They will not be empty-handed, just as you yourself, Abraham, did when you left Egypt. You did not leave empty-handed when I sent you out from that people after judging the Pharaoh. God promises here that when the time is right, when the moment in the future comes, he will be victorious over the enemies of God and he will on that day lead the people of God in victory over them. And so just as David leads his people in victory and then plunders the enemies of God, so too does God go out into the midst of his enemies and then come back victorious over them and God's people will walk away enriched because of it receiving an inheritance that was not their own. And so in this final plague, we see what God has promised to come, comes to fruition. It is happening. And we see and know that God is defeating and plundering his enemies. But at the same time, God will protect his people and enrich them. God protects his people and enriches them. Very briefly here, as you come consider this plague upon Egypt, it's clear God is going to war against the enemies of God because they are about to receive their due reward. But what, what about the people of God in all of this? What is their place in all of this? We've seen it hinted at already in this divide, this distinction between Israel and Egypt that has been maintained in all this time. But we'll see, even in this very next chapter, the people of God will look to this same exact night, this night that will be a night of mourning, of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a night that there will be none other like, and they look to the same night 
And yet God's people will celebrate this same night. They will celebrate this victory of God year after year, even into our present day. The Jews still celebrate this Passover night, and it becomes a joy to them, to the people of God. Why? Because they're protected in the midst of it. You'll notice in verses 6 and 7, Egypt cries out, but God says, not even a dog will growl against my people. But what does that mean, that not even a dog will growl? Our English translations don't help. I think if you translated it literally from Hebrew, though, it doesn't make much better sense of it. Uh, The Hebrew literally says something like, a dog's tongue will not threaten. We hear that and think, well, that's strange too. How does that make any sense here? What's that mean, the dog's tongue will not threaten, that it will not growl? What kind of threat would a dog's tongue be in the ancient Near East? When there is a disaster, and there is death in the air, certain animals come to feast on the remains of the dead. Ravens, buzzards, I even heard an elder yesterday talking about pigs coming and doing the same thing. And in the Bible, dogs join those ranks of animals that feast on the dead. And in fact, when you consider, they consider it a curse if your body is left exposed in the open air and does not receive its proper burial. That's why it matters when Jezebel is cast out of the tower and is eaten by dogs almost completely before she can be buried. She is a cursed woman. And God is saying, no dog's tongue, his mouth will not threaten any Israelite as they threaten the enemies of God, for they will be protected. I have set a hedge around them. They will not be eaten in their death, but they will not even taste death. And once all of this has happened, they will leave the land with plenty, not in want. They will have wealth. There will be prosperity even in their hand. But all of this in chapter 11, it is only announced. It is not yet accomplished. It's not yet enacted. But why? Why not just go ahead and keep with the narrative, allowing Moses to speak and then God to fulfill it, and Moses to speak and God to fulfill it? Why take the time to slow down and say, this is exactly what you are going to see happen? And let God's people go. There's only one thing missing here, people of God. The reason the text slows down, God does not act yet, He does not come down to wipe out Egypt and set Israel free because the blood of the Lamb has not yet been shed. If God were to come now, there would be no mediator, no substitute between God and his people, and he would be forced, as he walks in the presence of the land of Egypt, he would be forced to wipe them from the face of the earth too. But God has promised to do good to Israel, to save and deliver Israel, even as we hear those promises again here, but he cannot accomplish this until blood is shed. It is a mandatory reality. You see, that really is all that separates Israel from Egypt. God doesn't love his people because they're good and Egypt is wicked. He doesn't love them because they are so much more morally upright than the rest of the world. I mean, the first chance God's people get after they are redeemed, when we finally see them cross the Red Sea, we see them complaining against the God who saves them. 
repeatedly. They are angry. They have hardened their heart against him. And on their very wedding night, the night that a covenant is being made between God and Israel, they take the gold that was a gift to them from God of all the plunders that they would receive, their inheritance, and they turn it into an idol, bowing down to it as though it were their God. God's people are not a great people. They are a sinful people just as well just as much as Egypt, but God sets his love upon them and he separates them to himself, making them his beloved and holy children because of the shed blood of the lamb. Even the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the very one that Psalm 81 describes and declares as the firstborn of God. Christ is declared as the firstborn of God. You see, people of God, you escape the judgment of God that is set before you, and you can look at the exact same event that will cause the wicked to weep and gnash their teeth, and you can look on it with joy and thanksgiving enough to give you all that you have and all that you are to him in worship and praise God because he gave his own firstborn on your behalf. He sacrificed his son to die so that you, slaves who have nothing to offer him, who were once the enemies of God, you who despised the Lord of glory, God gave up his firstborn son and shed the blood of that lamb of God so that you might escape and be delivered to him. And even in joy, the very face of God, it is death to so many. For in Christ Jesus, God's face indeed now shines upon you and gives you his peace. You see, people of God, when God announces all these things beforehand, it is as though he is saying, hey, remember what happens here because this is your future. It is your story. You will walk through the valley of the shadow of death and make it safe to the other side because of the shed blood of the Lamb. Your future is certain and clear as you are in him, and God announces these truths to us that we might rest in the sacrifice of Christ and ultimately even receive an inheritance from our God and our King. People of God, may we respond to this announcement of God's grace and protection and wealth and glory. May we respond to this announcement of God's gospel in thanksgiving for all that he has done. May we indeed seek to walk according to the calling by which He has called us. God has given you all things in his son. He has given you freedom and deliverance from sin. May we in turn live our lives, may our entire lives be marked with thanksgiving to him, living joyfully before him, loving one another, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, the firstborn son of God who was sacrificed and yet also became the first fruits of the harvest. As he draws you into the very presence of God, may we praise him and magnify his name for all the good things that he has done for you in the precious blood of the Lamb of God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we come before you and we thank you. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. For Christ has died And Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And indeed, that future is sure, Father, as surely as the sun's rising this day. 
we know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you will return in all glory and all honor and that your kingdom will come and be manifested and that you will indeed uh, dispense and display the inheritance that is ours through him who loved us and sought us and pitied us when we were enemies of God. Father, how can we not thank you with our entirety and the entirety of our lives? We pray that you would help us to do so, to help us to walk in obedience to your law and to all that you have given to us. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen.